Hey guys, it's Scott. I just want to thank you for tuning into the Blue Ridge Church podcast. You know, I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope it's inspiring to you. And I pray most of all, it's going to help you on your faith journey. So enjoy today. Well, hey, thanks so much for being here with us at Blue Ridge Church. My name is Matt, and I want to welcome you here. If you're in person, watching online, we truly are glad that you've joined us. You don't got to worry. We're not going to do anything weird or make you feel awkward. We truly are glad that you're here today. Uh, We've been in this Christmas series over the last couple of weeks, and it's been a really fun time because we've been going through Christmas songs, these carols, these hymns sometimes where we've been singing them probably for a long time. Even if you don't go to church, you hear these on the radio, you hear these at church, you hear them caroling. And, And what we've looked at is the meaning behind a lot of these songs. Right? And so the last couple of weeks, Scott's gone through, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or O Come, All You Faithful, and has talked about how these songs, even though they're Christmas carols and Christmas songs, that they point to Jesus. Right? It's not just about Christmas, but it's about Jesus, that he's the center of it all, that, that his coming to this earth is the reason why we celebrate Christmas in the first place. And so it's often important for us to, to reflect back on why we do what we do. And so this morning, we're going to continue in that, and we're going to read about and talk about probably one of the most popular Christmas songs right from the Bible, and it's Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Um, no, 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 no. That's the wrong week. That's week, next week. Okay. Uh, Away in a Manger. We just sang it. Right? Away in a Manger. That's one of the most popular songs that we sing in Christmas. And, and I just want to re- reread, and I'm not going to sing this morning, but I want to go through that first, those first couple of verses because they're the most popular part of the song, but they really point to the heart behind what it means. And it goes like this. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Now, if you were to read that whole song and, or just think back to what we just sang, there's one phrase that gets repeated over and over in almost every single verse. And it's the phrase, the Lord Jesus, or sometimes it says, the little Lord Jesus. Now, be honest with me, because this is church, and you've got to be honest. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear the phrase, little Lord Jesus? Right, Talladega Nights, right? (laughs) Whoever that was, exactly, right? Talladega Nights, right? When he's praying, he's praying to that eight pounds, six ounce, sweet baby Jesus, right? Who, Who hasn't even spoken a word yet, but he's so sweet and cuddly and omnipotent right? The sweet little Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus is a really common phrase used in songs like this. And even in the Bible, the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of times, it references to Jesus as the Lord. And even in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Jesus coming references to the Lord coming to the people. And so there's this common theme throughout the scripture calling Jesus and giving him the title of Lord. Even in the New Testament, the first introduction we have of Christ in the book of Luke says this in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Do not be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. 
And so what I want to do this morning is look at what it means for these people of what they would have understood that to mean, what, what it would have meant for Jesus to be their Lord. And then what I want to do at the end is really take it home for us and to see what does it mean in, in almost 2022, right? What does it mean for us that Jesus is Lord? Now, the word Lord is not something that we commonly use much anymore. It's sort of an older word, something that was used in more ancient civilizations, but not necessarily in modern culture that we have today. Maybe the only use of Lord that we use is to describe the landlord, right? If you've rented or you have an apartment, you are accountable to the owner of the property, right? Hence the, the Lord over the land, okay? And so back then, the word Lord really had this meaning of lordship or ownership over something, you know, maybe it meant something in the feudal system in the medieval times, or it was something that designated uh, a deity or something that designated the, the ranking in a household. Uh, a lot of ancient cultures, not just biblical ones, but a lot of ancient cultures believed that the man in the house of uh, the house was called the Lord, right? That, that if you were a family member, you had to call your father or your husband the Lord or a Lord, which is why, just to be biblical, I tell my wife that she should call me Lord Matt all the time, and, uh, and that doesn't go over too well. But, uh, but no, it's this, this idea, right, that, that it's someone in charge, that it's someone who has ownership, that it's someone who has authority and someone who has control. And if you go back all the way back until the beginning of, of recorded time, of, of history, of ancient cultures, you see this, this thing, this title come up called the imperial cult. In the imperial cult, the cult isn't necessarily what it means today, right? Cult back then just was a synonym for worship. Uh, but this was the idea that the leader of the nation you lived in, whether that was a king, an emperor, whoever that was, that they were a god, that they were a deity, that they had power, whether that's a demigod or, or some sort of authority as a god figure that got them to that position and gave them authority over every other person in that kingdom, you can go all the way back to the ancient Egyptians and look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh was often seen as a god, a god in the flesh. You can keep going into the Greek culture. People like Alexander the Great, he was understood and seen as a godlike figure because of his accomplishments and his success. And even into the New Testament times where the Roman Empire took over, the emperor or the Caesar was seen as the Lord. He was the god, the one in charge of all of the people. And especially in the Roman Empire, the time of Jesus, there was this idea that if you wanted to be a part of that kingdom, that empire, you had to publicly admit and state that Caesar was Lord. As, as a matter of fact, this common term and this phrase came up all throughout history when you look at Roman civilization that was said this, that, that Caesar is Lord. You'd have to stand up and profess your faith in Caesar, your allegiance to that man, that he was the one in charge of your life that he had ultimate control over anything and everything about you, your career, right? Like you, you didn't just get to pick a job. You had to see what the, the kingdom needed and whatever Caesar said you had to do was going to be the job you took. Same thing with marriage and relationships. It's not like today where we kind of get to pick who we want to marry and be and, and date. It was very regulated. And if it wasn't a parent choosing that for you, it was the emperor, Right, because he was the Lord over your relationships too. Same with money. The phrase Caesar is Lord was engraved on every single coin in that Roman Empire it's a G that says Caesar is Lord just to remind the people that he is Lord over your money. He can ask for as much money from you as he wants whenever he wants and you have no other choice than to give it to him. 
And so there's this idea that Caesar was the Lord. He was the God figure. He was the one that was in control. And anyone who refused to acknowledge that was immediately put to death. Public display for all the people to see, for anyone who wasn't willing and able to call Caesar the Lord, was immediately put to death. And so that became somewhat of a problem for Christianity, right? Because as Jesus comes onto the scene, what does Jesus say he is? He's the Lord, right? The prophecy that brought him to where he was in that culture was saying and pointing to the fact that he was the true, the one true Lord, and there was no one else in existence who had authority over him. And so the dilemma that the early church had to deal with was answering that question, who is Lord? Who is the Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? Is it the human ruler that that runs this government or is it the God of the universe who's come in the form of a baby to take away the sins of the world? See, it became a huge problem because as these As the church kept growing, people like Paul and people like Silas would go from city to city, nation to nation, preaching the gospel, planting churches in all these different cities, and and they ran into a lot of problems because people would accuse them of leading those people away from the worship of Caesar and leading them into the worship of God. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 7, these people accusing Paul and Silas of doing this, just this. It says, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they're here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. So a lot of us know this, but the church experienced a lot of persecution in the early days where they were killed for their faith. And sometimes we think that the reason why the Romans didn't like the Christians was because they didn't like religion or they didn't like this idea of believing in God. And that wasn't the problem. The problem was that they were convincing people, the church was convincing people to turn away from worshiping Caesar as a God because people worshiped him. It wasn't just in name, right, saying Caesar is Lord. Like they worshiped him as a God. They offered sacrifices to him. They prayed to him. They gave money to him hoping to get something in return. And so when the church started leading people away from worshiping Caesar and seeing him as a God and and, and showing them the real truth that Jesus was Lord, he was the God, that became a problem. It became a big deal for that early church. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To be a Christian in this culture meant that you had to put your life at risk to put your existence at risk, your family at risk, everything you do at risk in order to declare that Jesus was the Lord. I think as I read that verse, you know, part of me, maybe it's the American part of me, is is sort of like descriptive of that, where, you know, if you just look at that by itself, that verse that says, all you got to do is openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. It's kind of that, like, oh, I just got to publicly state it and that's all I got to do, right? But that's not necessarily the case because you look back to the teachings of Jesus and he says things like this, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? He says, it's those who do the will of my father that will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not necessarily just being able to say that, but it's reflecting that with your entire life. See, for us to stand up and publicly say that Jesus is Lord, there's not much of a consequence for that. 
Like if you say it at your job, you might get laughed at. Or if you say it in your group of friends, you might be seen as like that Jesus freak or the Bible nerd or whatever, you know, name you might be called. But there's really not a real consequence where we live for saying publicly that Jesus is Lord. But back then, this was a matter of life and death. Like, like to say Jesus was Lord meant that you were serious enough about your faith to be able to stand in front of the Roman emperor, the Caesar, and deny that he was God and say that Jesus is God instead. It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal for Christians to be able to do that. And the idea here was that if you had the conviction enough to believe that God truly was, that Jesus truly was God, that he was the Lord, that if you were willing to stand up and say that to the emperor, then you probably had some real faith. Because nobody dies for a lie, especially these people who walked and breathed and lived next to Jesus as he was doing his ministry and performing these miracles and teaching this truth. And so like the song says, these people had to decide who, the early Christians had to decide who was going to be the Lord for, over their lives. Who was going to have the authority over everything they did? Who was going to have the ultimate control and the say in the lives that they lived? And I think that's the same question and decision that we've got to make even now today is who's the Lord of our lives? Who is it that has the ultimate control over the most important things about us? Now, we don't have a Caesar or an emperor. Even the president doesn't require us to swear our allegiance to him with the risk of dying if we don't. But oftentimes, that's an internal battle that we have, right? It's who's the Lord of our lives? Is it God or is it myself? Who wins in the end, what I want or what God wants? And so I think it's so important for us to understand that, which is why it's learning number one. If you want to take notes, you can write this down. I need to decide to let God take control of my life. I think the heart of Christianity is understanding that surrender piece is understanding the submission and, and in a good way, right, that we're submitting our lives to God. We're, we're coming under the authority of God saying, you do what with my life, what you want to do with it. You lead it where you want to lead, and I will do my absolute best to follow in that lead. Here's what, Matthew, or what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, he's saying, you've got to stop living your life your way and start living it God's way. Right? So for these people back 2,000 years ago, when Jesus said that, he was literally telling them, if you want to follow me, like you've, you've got to drop everything you're doing and physically, literally follow me, follow behind me where I'm going from places to, to cities to, to villages. And he would often tell these people as they said they want to follow him, he's like, are you sure? Because you've got to give up your life in order to find it. You know, he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. This is not a cakewalk. This is not a simple thing. But if you want to follow me, he says, you must give up your own way. The way you live your life. The way you make decisions. The way you handle conflict, the way you handle your money, the way you handle relationships, all of the things that you try to control and do on your own, part of being a Christian is giving that control up to God so that he can lead us in the way that he designed for life to be. See, the biggest problem we have when it comes to surrender 
I don't necessarily think it's the act of surrendering things to God initially. It's the act of continuously surrendering those things to God. To resist the urge to grab those things back from God after we've already submitted and, and surrendered and given him the control over those important areas in our lives. I feel like it's sort of like a cycle. That surrender sort of starts the same way for all of us. And if you've been a Christian, you've probably gone through the same cycle, is that you're living your life. And, and just like any of us, no matter how much you love God, no matter how much you read your Bible and, and, and obey God, like we all want control over our lives, right? I want control over my life. You want control over your life, especially the really important things. Because we think that if we don't have control over something, then something really bad is going to happen right? And so what we do is we live our lives trying to control all of those things around us. And what we learn as we get older is that we don't do a very good job of controlling just about anything, right? And so life gets hard. Maybe your relationship gets really difficult. Maybe communication is a problem. Maybe you're losing that love that you once had for that person. Maybe if you're a parent, parenting is getting exhausting. You've reached the end of your rope and you're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. I don't know how to fix this. Maybe it's a money issue. No matter how, how much you try to save, it seems like there's always some kind of emergency that always comes up and prevents you from getting, having progress in that area. And so a lot of us deal with these problems. And at some point in our lives, we probably get to the place where we say, I'm done right? Enough is enough. I, I can't do this on my own anymore. Maybe that's at church on Sunday, or maybe you're praying, or you're just reading through the Bible, or reading a book, or watching a talk, and you just give up. And you're like, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't know what to do. God, take it from me and do with it how you want. And so we give control to God. And, and often what happens is once we do that, we start seeing and experiencing how good life can be when we do it God's way. And I think that's part of the problem and, and part of the, the hard part of being a Christian. And sometimes I think it's harder to be a Christian than not because we get to experience in those moments of surrender of how good life can be when we do it the way God tells us to do it. When we're walking in faith, when we're living in obedience, when we're focusing on the right things, when we're doing the things that God tells us to do, it's not perfect. It's not this magical, everything's awesome but generally speaking, life makes a lot more sense when we do it God's way. And so when we give God that control, we start to taste and see how good that is. But the human nature in every single one of us, myself included, is always tempted to grab back what we've given to God. Because we freak out, right? We, we, we hate not having control over a situation, and so what we do is we, we fear that, that without having control, that something bad is going to happen. And so we do our best to grab, grab as much control of it as we possibly can in our own lives. And, and this is part of the heart of why life gets so difficult, is because we are so afraid of uncertainty. We are so afraid of not having control. We're afraid of losing control. That's why people who are control freaks are called freaks, <laughs> Right? Because, and I'm one of them, but it's because when you lose control, you freak out. Right? You kind of lose your mind and, and you don't think rationally about life and you do whatever you possibly can to regain control of whatever that might be in your life. And listen, it always ends terribly. I, I deal with this in my life. I, I know I'm a control freak. My wife knows I'm a control freak. My kids know I'm a control freak. And so I try to explain it to her all the time. If everyone in the world would just do exactly what I said, 
life would be way better, <laughs> right? Like, it's not that I'm a control freak. I'm more of like a control expert. That's what I call myself, <laughs> right? That if everyone just listened to me, right? Some of you are the same way. Like, if everyone just do life your way, right? You think life would be so much better. But we fear not knowing. We fear the uncertainty. We fear the unknown. And as a result, what we do is we try to grab and regain control over the things we've already given to God. So it's not necessarily the surrender part, it's the continuously surrendering those things to God and fighting the urge to grab those back. Learning number two says this, fear and uncertainty prevent me from trusting God with the most important areas in my life. I think that's so central to understand as we try to live the life that God has for us. That the fear and uncertainty in our lives prevent us from being who God has created for us to be. I mean, think back to the Egyptians. Many of you know this story in the Bible of Moses. It's kind of the, the scenario, but the, the people of God are held captive in, in Egypt. And so they're crying out to God, God, rescue us out of this slavery, this oppression. And God hears their cry. And so he sends this guy named Moses to the Egyptian Pharaoh in order to get Pharaoh to release God's people. Okay, and so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go, and what does Pharaoh say? No way, not gonna happen, right? Think about that for a second. Like, that's, that's Egypt's, that's their slave force, right? That's their labor force. That's a lot of the source of their riches and their wealth. Pharaoh's not gonna easily give this away. And so Moses goes back to God and he's like, I don't know what you want me to do. This guy's not gonna let these people go. And God says, go back to, to, to Pharaoh and tell him that if he doesn't let my people go, that I'm going to bring plague after plague after plague to the nation of Egypt. And so Moses goes back and still Pharaoh is like, no way, not going to happen. So we start seeing these plagues, right? The frogs, the blood, the locusts. Still Pharaoh says, no way. And, and it wasn't until the 10th plague that something really, really bad happened where Pharaoh was finally like, okay, you take them. You win. God, you win. You take the people. You lead them out of this place. I'm done with it. I can't deal with these plagues anymore. Take your people and get out of here. Okay? Now, that's the surrender piece. And I don't want us to miss this because oftentimes when we read through the Bible, we see and read these stories through the eyes of the heroes. Right? Like we see ourselves as the Moses in the story. Right? Being obedient to God, doing what he tells us to do, going to do hard things, even though we don't think we're qualified. We see ourselves as the Moses. We see ourselves as the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the, the Peters, the Pauls. We see ourselves as the heroes. And that's not always bad, but it's really important for us to sometimes see ourselves through the villains in the story. Because there's a lot of lessons that we learn from the people who refuse to give God control in their lives that could prevent us from a lot and a lot of heartbreak. See, the surrender piece happens the same way to us that it happened to Pharaoh. Typically, it starts with us being really stubborn, where we don't realize how out of control life has gotten all around us. So like Pharaoh, these plagues start coming, things get thrown into chaos, and he still thinks, I can control this. I can fight this. I can withstand this. I don't need to listen to God. And it's not until something really bad happens that he changed his mind. And it's the same thing with us, right? We're not willing to give anybody the control of our lives until we've realized we can't control it ourselves anymore, right? Like it doesn't make sense for us to give God control or give anyone control of anything unless we realize we've lost control, right? And so things can get really bad all around us, but we still are so stubborn. We're like, I can fix this marriage by myself. 
I can fix these money issues. I can fix this job issue. If I just try harder and push harder, I can do it. And it's not until something really, really bad happens in that situation that we finally are like, okay, God, you win. Like Pharaoh, that really bad thing happened. The firstborns were taken that night. And Pharaoh's like, you win, God. I can't control this. I've, I've fully lost control of the situation. Take the people. And so Pharaoh gives in to God and gives God control of the Israelites. And so what happens, some of you know the story, is he gives over control of the Israelites. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And here's what it says in verse 5, chapter 14, verse 5. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all of those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So he gives something to God, surrenders it to God, and then has a moment of regret. He realizes, I don't have control over this. Our slave labor, gone. The source of our wealth, gone. What was I thinking? Why would I ever give? Even though he forgot that he just had to deal with all of this chaos of all these plagues, he, he let the, the blinders take control of his life as he thought about all the repercussions of that decision. He's like, I don't know what we're going to do without these people. And so here's what he does in verse 6. Says, so Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. And he goes after the Israelites, goes after Moses, and he tries to get the people to come back. And the story ends terribly for him. Because as he goes over and tries to cross the Red Sea like Moses and the Israelites did, he tries to do it and the waters close up and his entire army is decimated. See, one of the biggest lessons we can learn in life, especially from this, is that there's certain things in our lives that aren't embraced and they've got to be forced. Like, for example, like you just can't look at your muscles and tell them to grow, right? Like, unfortunately, or else, you know, we'd all be huge, right? But you can't look at your, your, your muscles and say, grow. You've got to force it to grow. You've got to bring your muscles to the point of exhaustion, to the point of failure, to where the fibers break apart before it can heal and grow back bigger and stronger. And here's the truth. I think this is what God does. I think God oftentimes lets the most important areas in our lives come to the point of failure, to the point of frustration, to the point of exhaustion, to the point where we're broken, in order to show us how we need to surrender those things to God, of how we need to live our lives with our hands open to God, letting him take control, giving him the authority of all of the big, especially the big things in our lives that we do on a regular basis. And I think that's the heart of spiritual growth. You know, you'll never hear us stop talking about how important it is to read your Bible and to know the word. You'll never hear us stop talking about how important it is to cultivate a habit of prayer, to get plugged in into your local community, to serve, to, to do all of these things where we are obedient to God and doing all the things that we know Christians should do. But at the heart of spiritual growth, it's understanding how to let go of the most important things in our lives and give God the opportunity to fill us back up. Sometimes to fill us back up with the right things. You know, we let go of of the control we have in those areas, and it's scary, it's hard, it's difficult. But what we do is we open up the door for God to do things in our lives that we couldn't have ever done while we grab control of our own lives. Learning number three says this, because this is how we get there. 
It says, I can trust God by surrendering the life that I believe I'm entitled to. Like if we really want to be Christians who are surrendered to God, who, like that song says, call Jesus and live out the fact that he's the Lord of our lives, then the one thing that we really need to do is to trust God and surrender the life that we each believe we're entitled to. And when I say that, I mean this. I mean, all of us at some point in our lives have come up with a plan for our lives. Right? Like even from a young age, what's the most common question we ask kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? And it's usually changing for, you know, especially, you know, as they get older. But, but we plan out our lives. Every wedding I do, I think the bride says the exact same thing. I've been planning this day out from day one. Right? We all have plans. We, we choose, even men do this, right? Even though they might not even know what they're wearing for their wedding, they still plan things out, right? Why we plan out when we want to, or we want to go to school, where, what we want to do when we grow up, what we want to do when it comes to marriage, who we want to marry, and when we want to get married. Maybe that's an age, maybe that's a stage of our lives. We plan out when we want to have kids, how many kids we want to have, what kind of kids we want to have. We plan out everything in life. But for almost every single person I've ever met, it doesn't go according to that plan. Sometimes it's better, right, where your life turns out better than you thought it could. Most of the time, it's the alternative. <laughs> life doesn't turn out as good as we planned it to go. Whatever expectation we had doesn't come true. Maybe that's with a relationship or maybe that's with one of those dates you said, I want to be married by this, have kids by this, retire by this age. It doesn't go the way we plan. And, and it's not a bad thing because those things are, are things we just don't have control over. Right? Like those major areas of our lives, we don't have control over every variable that goes into that situation or that circumstance to plan out exactly what we want to happen at a certain time. That's why trusting God is so important. That's why submitting those things to God are so important for us. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, We make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. It doesn't mean, you know, to live as a Christian, we can't plan out our lives. It doesn't mean we can't have goals. It doesn't mean we can't have dreams or aspirations. I think that's part of being a Christian is we should have those things. But it's to have them with open hands to where we say, God, here's what I want. Here's the life that I desire. But in the end, you have control. If you want to give that to me, awesome. If not, I trust that whatever you have for me is the best possible situation for me. That's the hardest part of surrender. That's the hardest part of living our lives, like that song says, as Jesus as our Lord. So I think there's a difference between having plans and holding on to plans. We should have plans. We should have things that we want. We should be people who are leading the way of going after things in life and trying to accomplish goals and, and be leaders in our communities and our families. But sometimes it's hard to do when we're controlling those desires, when we're holding on to those desires. Even just think about that hand motion, right? When we live our, our lives with our hands open to God, like if we put something in our hands, right? If this represents the dreams that I have, I say, God, this is what I want. This is what I desire. And here it is. If you, like I said, if you want to give that to me, you can. If not, that's okay. I trust you. Whatever you give and whatever you do is best for me. But more often than not, what we do is we live our lives with our hands closed to that change and our hands closed to that control. And we try so hard to hold on to the things that we want. 
And so badly we try to hold on to those things, even when life isn't working out. And we know in the back of our heads this is not what's going to happen, but we try to force it over and over and over again. And just like Pharaoh, just like many of us have experienced, it always ends in disaster. See, there's one thing that you can't do when you live your life with your hands closed, your life closed to God. You make it impossible to receive. It's easy to see that we can try to control the situations in our lives. Like, no one's going to take control of this. No one's going to take this away from me. But what we forget is that God has a plan for our lives. And to see that plan come to life, we need to live our lives with our hands open so that not only can God take, but God can receive, that we can receive, that God can give. See, I think that's the important part of learning what it means to surrender to God, is that God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for my life a good plan, not necessarily a plan that we've come up with, not necessarily a timeline and a timetable that we've designed and we've come up with, but a plan for our lives that brings him the most glory and brings us the most joy. But it's in the moments where we live our lives with our hands closed that we find that life is difficult, life is hard, and it almost always ends terribly. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And it says this, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and to give you a hope. And the reason why this is one of my favorite verses isn't necessarily because that just sounds really cool, right? That's like the t-shirt, you know, you put on a coffee cup or put on your shirt. But it's because of the context around that verse that really brings it to life. See, this was written a really long time ago. It's one of the older major prophets in the Old Testament. And what was going on with the people of God at this point was they were facing the, the, one of the biggest enemies, most dangerous enemies that they have ever seen. And they were on the brink of having their nation, their city destroyed and run over by the enemy. And so in this situation, God comes to the people of Israel and says, if you give me the control of this situation, I will protect you. If you give me control and you surrender your plans to me, I will not only fight for you, I will fight with you on the battlefield. That's what he says to Jeremiah. But if you don't, if you close your hands off to God, then you're not going to have me on your side when this enemy invades your city. And so the people of God had a decision to make. Am I going to trust God and give God the control of this situation, or am I going to close my fist and try to deal with it myself? And ultimately what happened was the people of God chose to do it themselves. They closed their fist and they said, I'll deal with it myself. We think we've got a better plan than you. And so what the people did is they went to one of the neighboring nations and asked them for help. Said this enemy is actually one of their other enemies, but it was a smaller one. And they said, hey, listen, this big army is coming at us. We will, we will, we will put ourselves under your authority if you come and help us survive this battle. And so that nation comes and fights with the Israelites. And when this enemy came in, just destroyed their city, destroyed both armies, took the men, women, and children captive and led them back to their, their city, their nation into captivity. See, Jesus, right? Or what happens is God speaks this verse in the midst of that, of these people walking off into captivity for what would be 70 years of being a slave to another nation. But what he tells them is this. He says, I've got a plan for you guys. 
Life is not going how you plan it to go. And mostly that's because you closed off the, you've closed off your life to me, right? Like you've not given me control. You've not let me take care of you the way that I designed it to happen. But he says, I have a plan for you and it's a good plan, a plan for you to prosper, a plan for you to succeed, a plan for you to go forward in the future if you only open up your life to me and let me take control of the most important areas in your life. So I think as the Christmas season goes on, one of the things that we need to remember when it comes to, especially what this song says is Jesus being Lord, is a reminder to give God the control in those important areas in our lives, our whole lives. And not just as a one-time thing, but continually over and over again, giving God the control of your career, saying, God, you do with it whatever you want, giving God the control of your relationship. God, you do it the way, I want to I submit to your way and do it your way instead of my own way. But it's living our lives in a way where we can plan out our lives and put those things before God and say, you do with it with what you want. I surrender to your will, I surrender to your control, and I know that whatever you have for me, is best as long as I do those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask you this morning to help us with that. That is not an easy thing to do, God, to, to give over the control of the most important things to us, God, to you. And, and even if we have a relationship with you, that doesn't get easier. Sometimes it's getting to the point of brokenness and getting to the point of frustration before we realize how important it is to actually give you those things and to treat you as the Lord of our whole lives. I know there's so many of us here who, as I was talking and and we were reading these scripture verses where you knew exactly what it was in your heart that God was, was calling you to surrender to him. Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe you've run out of ways to fix it. Maybe it's your finances and you just don't know how you're gonna pay next month's rent. You don't know how you're going to make it through this week. Maybe it's your career. You hate what you do. You hate who you work with and hate what it stands for and you just don't know what to do. This is the moment where God gives us to hand those things over to him and give him that control. God, help us all. Help us to remember in this holiday season, this Christmas season, what's truly most important. Help us to remember that you came to this world as a baby to die for us, ultimately to give us life. So God, help us to choose you each and every single day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, This is actually the last Sunday of the year that we're going to be meeting, so don't come to church next Sunday. You won't be able to get in the doors, Uh, but come this Friday because we're going to do our Christmas Eve services at 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock. So pick one of those. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be a great service. Uh, One of the things we're going to try to do this year, and don't laugh at me, is we're going to try to do, we don't do candles here because, you know, this place would be burned down within minutes, but we're going to try to do digital candles. And so uh, if you want to download an app on your phone, you can download like a lighter or a candle on your phone. And we're going to do something fun on Christmas Eve where we kind of pretend we're at a concert and, and wave them back and forth. I think it'll just be a really cool thing to experience for us and for the kids that'll be here. But I want to encourage you to go to the app store, download one of those, and join us at either one o'clock or three o'clock on Friday to have a great Christmas Eve service. Again, thank you so much for being here, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks.